I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. Today, Russians around the world are observing Russia Day. But of course, on all Russians' minds is the war in Europe and what's next. The information war has been even more ferocious than the NATO nation wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Syria. Even top US cable news presenter and dissident on Ukraine, Tucker Carlson, was fired from Rupert Murdoch's Fox News and is now just on the internet. So just days ahead of the annual St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, who else to go to but Fyodor Lukyanov, editor-in-chief of Russia in Global Affairs and chairman of the Presidium of the Russian Council for Foreign and Defense Policy. Fyodor, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. I suppose I better start with the fact that while Tucker Carlson's got all those uh, views on Twitter criticizing and slamming the billions being given to Zelensky, uh, otherwise it does seem that if you look at Bucha, if you look at Nord Stream, if you look at uh, Kakovka, the Kakovka Dam, Russia's lost the information war. The working classes of Western Europe and in the United States believe Russia is evil. Yeah, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a big honor to be on your show. Uh, secondly, I must say that uh, Tucker Carlson is one of the most popular persons in the United States, from the United States in Russia. That's, I think, a big achievement. Everybody knows. That's what his detractors say in the United States in the Democratic <laughs> National uh, yeah. Party to prove he's a Russian agent, obviously. But anyway. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm afraid he's not, but I, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, as, for, as for the information war, you know, yes, indeed, uh, Russian ability to deliver uh, our message to the international scene is uncomparable to what uh, American, uh, British, European, English-speaking media can do all over the world. And this is, of course, an advantage which uh, the West has. And uh, unfortunately, I, I, I have to say that there is no way just now to counter work efficiently against that. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, the credibility of uh, uh, many media organizations in, in the United States and in Europe will, be, uh, uh, will not be destroyed by Russian competitors. It's impossible, unfortunately. But it will be undermined by, by, by the, the way how the news and uh, uh, shows will be uh, conducted and produced now. Because I think that people, you mentioned working class, Working class starts to doubt almost everything they hear from media. And, you know, I am old enough to remember the old good days of the Soviet Union in 70s and 80s. And I see a little bit the same phenomenon in the West now. When we watch Soviet propaganda, almost everybody, including the working class, believed that was just a book. And uh, that's a, that was a big trouble for the Soviet Union, which at the end of the day disappeared. So we'll see what will happen to the West. Yeah, but that signifies for the future China and Russia and other BRICS powers, Shanghai Cooperation Organization powers, better get it together with culture and the importance of culture, perhaps. I mean, your first name evokes the idea of Fyodor Dostoevsky. The Soviet Union had it, Russia had it. But of course, there's no comparison uh, to Hollywood. Uh, let alone the uh, new English language uh, news networks that uh, continually, as I say, say Russia blew up the Nord Stream, Russia was responsible for the Bucha massacre in Ukraine, and Russia blew up uh, the dam uh, responsible for drinking water in Crimea, the uh, Kakovka. 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, if if you if we would remember the Soviet Soviet period, Soviet Union, of course, Soviet Union had uh, quite a uh, quite a successful machine, propaganda machine, information machine. Uh, but uh, Soviet Union had an ideology, which was rightly or wrongly quite well received in many constituencies uh, around the globe. Uh, Russia today has no ideology and has no ambition, actually, unlike the United States, for example, to, to try to extrapolate anything on others. And, of course, in this situation, that, that's very difficult to compete with those who believe that they have uh, this ideological picture and they have means to, to spread it. As for uh, the particular cases you mentioned, be it Nord Stream or Kahovka or other, uh, the, another recent event was uh, this ammonium uh, pipeline which has been blown uh, uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, yes, indeed, that are obviously uh, episodes of the war, information war, but first of all, real war. And I think this is more important, unfortunately, that uh, those things uh, generate enormous suffering, enormous trouble for, for people, for human beings. And then on that, we build down a lot of propaganda on all sides, because this is a theme of, of the war, which is everywhere. But uh, in this particular case, I would rather say it's more important what really happens on the ground and not uh, so much what we see or how we imagine that. Well, perception always uh, important. You said ideology is, uh, is absent, but of course some would say then Putin's ruling uh, party, therefore for it, uh, the ideology is there is no ideology. This is multipolarity, I suppose. Uh, you know, multipolarity is not an ideology. That's, uh, for, for me, multipolarity is just fact of life how the world has been transformed, not because of Russia, not because of China, because of natural development of international system. And now we live in this new environment, but that's it. It's not like every, uh, somebody imagined that or, or uh, invented that. And uh, ideology is something which uh, you can present, so to say, uh, the way how uh, contemporary state and society should work, if you describe it, if you have this... Uh, uh, this picture, clear picture, this is ideology. Unfortunately, I don't see anything like that on the Russian side. Since we abandoned communism, we are extremely pragmatic and, uh, so to say, uh, uh, materialistic, so oriented towards uh, uh, today's uh, deeds and, and moves. Well, I've got to tell you, if you go to Langley, Virginia, and start talking about multipolarity, they'll see that as ideological very, very quickly, as you know. And, uh, you know, I... I watched the interview you did with uh, Vladimir Putin at the uh, Valdai uh, summit uh, recently, or relatively recently, in Russia. Was it, uh, did you get the impression it was a sudden epiphany, this no-ideology business, this multipolarity, and that he trusted the Minsk Accords so uh, clearly? We now know they're nonsense, according to Angela Merkel, former chancellor. He suddenly, Putin suddenly had this epiphany and realized, oh, so they can't be trusted after all. Or it was slowly uh, progressing in his mind. Because I'm sure, I don't know what you were saying ahead uh, in the years from 2014 and the, and the NATO back coup in Kiev, whether you were saying, oh, you know, the negotiation is the way, as so many Russian 
dare I say it, elite uh, uh, analysts and uh, commentators did, when a lot of other people, probably Russians and certainly Russian nationalists, were saying, don't trust them. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's correct. And uh, Putin is, uh, uh, is an uneasy person, uh, not, not a very simple one. So, yes, he has an image in the West of being extremely rude and extremely uh, assertive and uh, uh, genuinely anti-Western and so on. Just look at his record. Just look at his uh, uh, period as uh, in the position of Russian president and prime minister, starting from 2000. There was uh, uh, no other leader in Russian history who... Uh, tried so consistently to make Russia part of the extended West. That was Putin between 2000 and approximately 2006. He really believed that Russia should find a proper, decent place in the Western-led system, proper, proper and decent, but in the Western-led system. He did not aspire to challenge that. But, uh, yes, and he, he, he based his view on the idea, a very simple idea, that our uh, interaction, our cooperation, Russia-Europe, Russia-US, are so fantastically advantages for both sides, so good for, for, for both, and uh, can, uh, can uh, produce so many profits for both Russia and the West, that it is simply uh, stupid not to use this. But uh, unfortunately, it, it went differently for, uh, we, it's a very long discussion why, but I would uh, say two reasons, uh, two main reasons at that period. First of all, Putin believed that we can base our, our interaction on interests, uh, uh, mostly or entirely. From the West, and the, we, we come back to your question about ideology. Russia was absolutely non-ideological at that point. Uh, on the other side, Europeans and Americans came with the idea, yes, interaction and cooperation is, is fantastic, excellent. But before we start, let's, let's, you, should, uh, uh, you should accept that our values, our set of, uh, uh, picture, set of perceptions is correct, and you need to adopt it. And then we can cooperate and so And this value-based thing, and I would say this is ideology, of course, this is ideological approach, that uh, has derailed a lot because Putin said uh, the opposite. Let's start with interest, let's start with our uh, concrete um, uh, interconnection, and then we will see Russia will slowly move towards uh, uh, more or less same, uh, uh, same uh, kind of uh, political system and so on. But this is our way, this is our decision. The Western position was not first you should change and then it. And second, second reason, which unfortunately uh, turned absolutely terminal and fatal for our, uh, our uh, cooperation, uh, Russia believed and Putin believed historically and uh, contemporarily that Russia as a great power, traditional great power, has right to have a sphere of influence, to have a sphere where... Uh, its interests are being uh, uh, respected. In okay, the first well, line. I mean, some would say they're mutually exclusive, those two, but, uh, and also Catherine the Great isn't here to talk about uh, the fact that she too wanted to uh, move philosophically uh, uh, westwards, arguably. Uh, 
to speak about specifics then right now, so the position we're in, it's clear, putting Europe to a side, we might return to that in a second, Anthony Blinken against a ceasefire. I mean, did it surprise you how far they're going to go to the end? Was it Boris Johnson sent to destroy the uh, Chinese peace plan for Ukraine, being sent to Zelensky and saying, look, this is a fight to the end, regardless of nuclear weapon use? Politically, uh, I think that, unfortunately, uh, just now we have no chance for any kind of peace uh, uh, discussions, be it open discussions or even hidden discussions, uh, because uh, we are uh, in the middle of a, an extremely uh, severe, fierce uh, battle. Yes, indeed, both sides perceive it as existential. On the Russian side, if you ask anybody in the uh, ruling uh, group or even very many of uh, citizens, ordinary uh, citizens, they would say that uh, after what happened and after what is uh, happening now, uh, the only goal of uh, the West, and Ukraine is an instrument uh, in Western hands, the only goal is to destroy Russia as a great state great power completely. So in a way that Russia will never recover. And this is the belief here. On the other side, I think for United States, this is a very actually relevant and, and maybe a correct assessment that uh, if uh, Ukraine will be uh, defeated or at least if Russia will achieve significant goals there, that will be a very serious blow to uh, US domination in the world and process trends, which we see already now, that other countries start to look around and uh, don't uh, uh, accept uh, US uh, primacy anymore, this process will become like, like, a, like a Levine. So that's uh, what I, what I uh, think is uh, uh, the situation now, which means that there is no compromise. One side should win, and this is the situation right now. Fyodor Lukanov, I'll stop you there. More from the editor-in-chief of Russia in Global Affairs and chairman of the Presidium of the Russian Council for Foreign and Defence Policy after this break. This is how some NATO countries approach Ukraine's membership in the alliance. Will the U.S.-led military alliance attempt to invite Kiev into the club through some kind of back door at the upcoming summit in Vilnius?
Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the Editor-in-Chief of Russia in Global Affairs, Fyodor Lukyanov. Well, the speed of the multipolarity, of course, is a major issue. Russia obviously wanted uh, quicker, uh, sooner rather than uh, later. You were talking about uh, what some might see as Putin's earlier naivety, others his optimism. Is Russia and Russian elites again making the same mistake because Erdogan has been re-elected? What does he do? Send Turkish troops to Kosovo to reinforce NATO uh, in, uh, against the uh, Serb population there. We've seen, um, we've seen him presumably making efforts to uh, have Sweden back in NATO. Serbia's Alexander Vucic, what, ready to send ammunition to Zelensky in, uh, in the bulk, from the Balkans? Uh, Lula? Neutral. Saudi Arabia, neutral, avowedly. Why aren't all these different powers okay? They're not supporting uh, Western Europe and the United States, the minority of uh, nations whose uh, envoys by population voted at the UN General Assembly. But is there a naivety here about the speed of uh, uh, BRICS uh, hegemonic power? Uh... No, I wouldn't call it naivety, and more than that, uh, you say BRICS hegemonic power, uh, you know, that's, that's the very Western view, that if one hegemon is being uh, uh, the, the, the post from the position, then another hegemon should come. Multipolar hegemonic uh, power, then. Yeah, but multipolar polar hegemonic power is not a hegemony. So, you know, that this, this is the question, and more than that, it's my personal view. I don't re represent anybody here. Uh, but I think that even multipolarity, in a sense which we saw it before, and that was, uh, to, put it, to put it bluntly, how uh, did we uh, imagine multipolarity, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when we aspired that? Something like a European concert of force, concert of powers in 19th century. Not one hegemon, but, say, three, four, six countries. I'm not sure that's a good combined. parallel there because what followed that was World War I and World War II. Exactly, exactly. That's what I say, what, I, what I'm trying to say, that we imagined multipolarity because we, we, we had no other, other parallel, so we imagined like this. But what we see now is actually multipolarity in the sense that hegemony or domination is not available anymore. Even the United States understand that. Then we have more and more players, more and more countries, which has something to say. Some of them are very big, like China, like Russia, like India. Some of them are uh, less uh, uh, um, uh, middle-sized countries, like Turkey, which you mentioned, like Saudi Arabia. Some of them are very tiny countries, like, uh, uh, for instance, Qatar. But all those countries, they have certain influence on what is going on in the world. This absolutely new situation. We, we, we couldn't imagine, say, 20, 25, or 30 years ago, that, that a country in size of Qatar would be, uh, should, be, uh, uh, should be regarded as a player. And that, this is what is coming. And in this, in this um, big uh, picture, what you said about Serbia, about Turkey, about other countries, that's a, no, that's a new normal. It's because every country is trying to survive and every country is trying to pursue its own national interest, and this is normal, 
Russia is trying to do that, but everybody else as well. What we what we is, uh, what we are leaving. I mean this. Uh, um, uh, rules-based order and so that, that, that this is a situation when everybody should do what is has been prescribed by somebody now it's over and this this is a new situation uh now uh turkey is sending uh, uh people to kosovo tomorrow turkey is uh, helping russia to to settle some very important issues. The day after tomorrow, Turkey works with I don't know whom, with uh, France about something. That's that's a normal thing new now. And this is actually what we saw in the history of international relations for, for centuries. So the period after the Second World War was actually an exemption, not a rule. Well, uh, Gramsci, of course, who invented that hegemonic uh, term, meant the uh, global working class was the hegemon. So that's kind of multipolar. But whereas the world you're uh, viewing, which, of course, ironically, is the kind of world pronounced from, from the US State Department, but clearly uh, I think anyone in the world will uh, realize that, that was, uh, that's, a, that's a PR stunt that the, the US use. But the point is that while you want this lovely world to emerge, there are assassinations in Moscow, in St. Petersburg. Uh, there's a, a drone attack on the Kremlin. Uh, Blinken talking about uh, a strategic failure for Russia is... I don't even know whether Russia even understands that uh, they suddenly have a 1,340-kilometre border with Finland to guard against uh, NATO, which uh, Finland, of course, uh, assessed to NATO the other day. I mean, was Russia even guarding the Nord Stream from attack? That's why the um, so-called mainstream media in NATO nations talks about imminent demise of Russia. You know, the, the period, the, the time where, uh, 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 when, when we live now, that's an absolutely exceptional moment in history. Okay, not exceptional. Uh, such moments happen, but uh, not, so, not so frequently. So not, not each generation lives through something like this when the whole world system uh, is drifting apart and changing, transforming into something completely different. In this regard, uh, changes today are bigger than changes uh, 30 plus years ago when communism uh, collapsed because uh, bipolar system disappeared, but institutional framework of international relations uh, did remain at that time and uh, survived until until recently. Now it is collapsing. And if we look through this lens, through 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 this prism, then of course uh, such kind of changes cannot be easy, cannot be uh, quick, and cannot be uh, painless. So where, uh, was Russia fully prepared for such kind of scale? No. Uh, could we uh, predict and imagine this kind of uh, uh, collapse of the previous uh, setup of relationship? No. Uh, was Putin it, told you uh, he wasn't disappointed with how things had gone. Yes, P Putin is a politician. How he can uh, how he can say to the whole uh, public that he was disappointed? He's a, he's a leader of the nation. He has no right to to be disappointed. Actually. So I, 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 it's easier for, for me. I can, I can analyze uh, slightly uh, more uh, openly. So, and, uh, you know, you, you ask and you, you quote uh, this uh, assessment that Russia is in, in decline, in demise. 
at the end of the day, again, we started with uh, uh, saying that we are now at war. I mean, a big war, hybrid war, whatever, how you call it, um, proxy war. But this is a big war between Russia and the West. Uh, and this war, uh, fortunately, is not uh, yet is not yet direct collision, but we are moving towards that, unfortunately. And if it is a war, why should we expect a smooth uh, uh, continuation of uh, things which we got, uh, got used to? Of course, it's impossible. So the problem with me, for example, and my colleagues a uh, year and a half ago, when basically, when almost all of us failed to predict what was coming, was uh, very, very, very simple. We, we underestimated the scale of changes which started in the world, not just between Russia and Ukraine or Russia and the United States. This is a world process. We underestimated that, and that's why uh, the whole uh, beginning of a special military operation uh, caught us by surprise. Now we understand the scale, and unfortunately, we need to, we need to accept that this scale will be extremely... Uh, traumatic for all of us. Yeah, presumably it's not called war by the Russian government and special military operations because if the Russians really wanted to take Ukraine tomorrow, they'd use aircraft and mass casualties and uh, that would be a, a war. Let's get on to Western Europe then, because if uh, I was telling you that Blinken uh, called a things a strategic failure for Russia, is the EU from your vantage point, and you talk to CEOs, I've seen you at Valdai, St. Petersburg is coming up, you've spoken to all these sorts of people. As far as you can see, is the EU bankrupting itself? Uh, Germany now in recession, we don't know how much poverty will kill people in Western Europe, uh, because Germany is the powerhouse of the uh, economy in Europe, let alone how many died because of Nord Stream, uh, because of the cold and the higher uh, energy prices and the fluctuating energy prices in Europe? So I'm not qualified uh, to assess the economic policies of uh, Germany or other European countries. So I think that uh, partially we here in Russia uh, overestimated or underestimated the resilience of European economies in the same way as uh, the West underestimated the resilience of Russian economy. But what is important, I think it's, it's not my view, it's the view of uh, Mr. Borrell, for example, who said uh, in a speech half a year ago or so, uh, talking to, um, uh, to uh, European diplomats, uh, representatives of European Union worldwide, he said very clearly that uh, our, uh, our prosperity, European prosperity, was based on two sources, cheap uh, Russian energy, and cheap Chinese labor. Uh, and that was a very successful model for Europe for decades uh, 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 coming back to maybe 50s or 60s at least, 60s and 70s. Uh, now it's over, he said. And that means that Europe will need a completely new uh, economic model. And this economic model will not be based on all those advantages it had before. Uh, Russian-European uh, energy relationship was fantastically good for both sides, unbelievably good. Just very, very briefly, what is the St. Petersburg uh, International Economic Forum? Because uh, globally, I don't think Joseph Borrell was, is invited this year. Uh, what is it? No. <laughs> Starting from last year, it is more 
in inward looking is more oriented uh, towards uh, domestic development. Uh, despite this fact, uh, there are some uh, relatively many foreign guests, uh, mostly from so-called friendly countries, non-Europe, non-US. But uh, of course, for Russia, as for the EU, for Europeans, that's time to totally reassess the economic model and model of economic development. And that's I know, no I know you're, uh, you're moderating some of the uh, important discussions there. Fyodor, thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it for the show. We'll be back on Saturday with a brand new episode. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, and head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.